0: Welcome to Radio Free Culture from WFMU, where we examine issues at the intersection of digital media and the arts. My name is Cheyenne Homan, and in this episode, we'll be talking with Jason Stasek, a composer who created the soundtrack for an interactive documentary about web privacy called Do Not Track.
1: My name is Jason Stasek, and I'm a composer. I write music for film and other media, including uh, web series and advertising, and anything that has moving pictures. I live in the Pacific Northwest on a little island called Vashon Island.
0: That's cool. So, how long have you lived out there?
1: Well, I've lived in the Northwest, in the Seattle area, since about 1991. So, about 24 years. And I've uh, been on the island, on Bashon uh, now for nine years.
0: It's probably nice and quiet out there. Does that help your creative process?
1: Well, it does. And that was a big motivation for moving out there. So, I, I was living in Seattle uh, before I moved to the island. and, and uh, you know, Seattle is not a huge city by any means, but it's a busy city, and there's a lot of traffic, and there's a lot of noise. And Vashon is uh, completely rural. It's about the size of Manhattan, but the population is only 10,000. So it's uh, mostly farms. There's a tiny little center of town with a, a you know grocery store and a few taverns and a little, some art galleries and a coffee shop. But uh, I live with my family in the middle of the woods, 10 acres, and the studio is out in the middle of the 10 acres, and it's, uh, it's absolutely silent out there except for the birds and the, whatever animals you hear running around in the forest at night. And for me, it's a huge help to be able to start from, uh, from silence, which is essentially a blank canvas for me. It's like uh, starting with, uh, from, from nothing. I go to Seattle now, and I can't, I can't even believe how noisy it is. It instantly gets me tense and crazy.
0: I found out about you because you approached FMA to host some tracks from the soundtrack to this interactive documentary called Do Not Track. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell me a little bit about Do Not Track.
1: Sure. So Do Not Track is a very interesting uh, web-based uh, documentary, and it's an interactive documentary uh, about internet privacy. And It's uh, produced by a, a group in Paris called Upion and uh, co-produced by uh, partners in uh, Montreal, the National Film Board of Canada. It's directed by Brett Gaylor, who is even in a third city in Vancouver, I'm sorry, uh, Victoria, on Vancouver Island. And the the series is really uh, an exploration of uh, what we, as users of the Internet, users of things like Facebook and Amazon and eBay, what we trade uh, in terms of uh, our personal information and privacy in order to get the services that they offer for us. And... The, the interesting thing about the series is that uh, it, it's interactive, so as you go through, the series will actually track you, as they say in the title, Do Not Track, but they actually do say up front they're gonna track you and they're gonna to try to find out things about you just to illustrate uh, what can be uh, discovered about a person who's using the internet online. And at certain points, they'll ask you things like, uh, uh, where do you get your news, uh, where do you go for recreation? And, and over this uh, the course of the series, they, they build up a profile of you slowly, and they can reveal to you in a, in a very uh, visual, uh, tactile way how these companies also build up these uh, these profiles about you, and, and then how they use them. And um, it just gives you an idea of what's hidden behind these. Uh, the, uh, these services, these mechanisms that are not—they're um, not visible to us at all—it shows how the how the information is collected and then how it gets used, and it's pretty eye-opening stuff, and it's pretty scary. It uh, it may feed uh, the, the folks who have the uh, conspiracy theory gene in them, but I think it's um I think it's important for people to know. And I know the series doesn't uh, the series doesn't take a very strong stand on saying this is bad and we need to do X, Y, or Z about it. But it the the, the thrust of the series is making sure that we understand what's happening so that we can do something about it if need be and we can help guide it as it develops because it is just in its infancy too. We we don't know how it's going to continue to grow, how we're going to be tracked in the future, how it's going to affect our uh, uh, our medical insurance and, our, uh, and things like that. So uh, that's the gist of the series. Uh, it was delivered online, seven episodes, but it's also being produced as a 30-minute uh, uh, linear show which will be uh, shown in uh, Germany and France and Canada
0: that's really cool so did you just get commissioned or did you already have a relationship with these folks or how did how did you all connect
1: no it was a funny story uh, I guess I won't name names because it's funny but I uh, about two years ago I was in uh, Los Angeles for a conference uh, a music conference and uh, I was in the men's room and uh, I was the only one in the men's room and the door burst open and a woman flew into the men's room, uh, just, you know, crazy looking like she really needed to use the bathroom quickly. She was shocked to find herself in the men's room and she looked at me surprised and, and yelped and turned around and ran back out. And, uh, I went back to my seat at the, uh, at the conference. And then I turned to my left and there was the same woman who had just crashed into the bathroom. And, uh, we ended up becoming uh, great friends and uh, had a great time at the conference. And um, it turns out that she is also a composer, and uh, she is married to a composer in Montreal. And uh, the Do Not Track folks had originally uh, sought out her husband uh, to do the work on the film, or the, the series rather. And uh, he was unavailable. So fortunately, she remembered me from the bathroom and said, hey, why don't you call Jason? He might be the right guy for you. So it was uh, a random meeting in, uh, of the wrong gender in the bathroom was what led to it.
0: <laughs> that is quite a story. I'm glad I asked.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's different from the usual story. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. Oh, they <laughs> found my, my portfolio they, they online. I'm <laughs> really,
1: oh, sorry. Say again.
0: <laughs> oh, you know, instead of uh, oh, they just found me online or something. Right.
1: Right. <laughs> and I was I was just going to add that uh, you know I I talked to the producers and I talked to the director Brett Gaylor, and um, Brett is Canadian and I I think that uh, I think they decided to keep me even though I was American, because uh, I had done a lot of work with uh, the Canadian director, Guy Madden, who is is sort of a Canadian national treasure. And uh, if it hadn't been for my work with Guy, they might have thrown me back. So that, that was the other good part of it for me.
0: <laughs> yeah, so this is a really unusual documentary in that it is interactive. So um, have you worked on an interactive piece before? I had not
1: worked on an interactive piece. I've never done any kind of gaming or any, any sort of... Everything I've done before had either been uh, mostly film, so completely linear. So it was brand new for me, and, and Brett guided me through it. You know, I did a lot of writing of uh, small chunks of music that they could use uh, in these little interstitial bits where they would have to pause and loop. And uh, so there were a lot of little 8-, uh, 9-, and 12-second things that they could, uh, they could fill in with. And then interspersed with longer, you know, typical pieces that uh, would run underneath uh, narrative. But so it was new for me, for sure.
0: This documentary has some pretty heavy subject matter.
1: <laughs> and yes. I think
0: that the soundtrack is pretty bouncy and upbeat. And sort of why did you choose to take that angle in your compositions?
1: Well, you know, Brett and I talked about that. And we knew that we didn't want this thing to be a, a lecture and uh, and a slog for anybody. And, um, you know, the episodes are fairly... Well, they're short, but I think they're long by internet standards. You know, they're six to ten minutes, um, which is that's a long time to ask for someone's attention these days. You know, it sounds horrible, but I think it's true. And we wanted it to be uh, we wanted it to be engaging. We wanted it to be a story that you wanted to return to. We didn't want it to be a a bummer. And uh, it would have been very easy just to make the whole thing. Very serious and sort of like a you know a, a PBS documentary, and uh, so it's not to say that we were trying to make it deliberately happy or funny, but um, it needed to be serious but move along enough that you could, or uh, how should I say, positive enough that you wanted to return to participate in the story, not to be turned off and because you're being lectured to by the by documentarians. <laughs>
0: Also, I know that there were a lot of little bursts of sort of sound effects and things. Mm-hmm. Um, did you work with him on that, or did he already sort of have some of that in mind or, or in his collection there, already?
1: There was another sound designer uh, who worked on the on the show from Paris. So Brett and I would work on the music together, and, and uh, you know, I would turn over music to him, and he would kind of uh, shuffle it around as he saw fit, and then it all would end up going to Paris where the, the sound designers would work on it, and then the mixers would work. So I, ne- I didn't necessarily even... Know exactly where every piece was going to go uh, in the final thing. So it was different from film in that way for me, where I, I typically know exactly which frame is going to be doing everything. Um, it's a little, a little more free this time.
0: What has the response been to this documentary, to your knowledge?
1: Well, to my knowledge, it's been, it's been very good. I mean, at, at first, I, s- I noticed that there were a number of comments that were coming back that uh, people were saying, hey, do not track. You guys are tracking us. What, what are you doing? You, you know what, what's going on. <laughs> and of course, that's it's, we tell you that, and it's part of the part of the experience. We we have to do that in order to give you the full experience. But uh, as it's gone on, I think the the, the uh, response has been overwhelmingly positive. People uh, have been commenting about how eye opening it is, and how there needs to be more of this kind of uh, uh, information, and there needs to be a second season of this that goes even further than it has gone so far.
0: Is online privacy an issue that you were passionate about before, or did this just sort of come along and got you interested in it?
1: Ah, uh, so that's a good question. I don't, I don't, wouldn't say that I w- was passionate about it. it. was something I'm aware of, and I, I, uh, I, I'm much more worried about the security side of things than the, than the privacy side of things. So I, I have typically been more uh, cautious about the banking, online banking stuff, and uh, people getting access to. Gmail and finding out, uh, uh, you know, identity theft, which is not the same as the privacy thing. It, there's this really fine line that uh, you become aware of when you watch the series. Uh, we do get a lot out of uh, being able to use, uh, you know, Facebook and uh, and Amazon and, and these other things. There's a, I mean, the, the the communication that you can do with far-flung friends and the uh, uh, the. I'd say me living on an island, uh, Amazon is a godsend. We can only get off by boat. So it's made me aware of, of what I'm giving up. And now I just think about it instead of not thinking about it. So let's put it, I haven't actually changed any habits, but now I see things popping up all over the place. Like, oh, that's happening because these guys have talked behind the scenes and somehow they know something I did over here and that information leaked over here. So, oh, okay. Now I have to be aware that if I'm searching for cat food, it's going to pop up over here.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I always think that's interesting. I know that you, you said earlier um, that you weren't that familiar with the free music archive before this project. Um, Were you familiar with creative commons and like, if so, how do you feel about releasing stuff with creative commons licenses?
1: That's a great question. So I, I, that's right. I was not familiar with the FMA. I've been familiar with the Creative Commons for quite a while, and honestly, I've always been a little bit uh, what's the right word for it? Just a little freaked out by it, or a little scared, or something. Um, you know, I I I always thought, you know, that spirit seems right, but I I don't want to do that with my stuff because I, I need to keep my stuff, and and uh, it's how I make my living. So why would I release it under Creative Commons and I have come to, to see a very different um, side of things in, in a couple of ways. Um, the, the first one is I, I worked on a film uh, last year called And We Were Young, which is a, a feature-length animated documentary about World War I and a, a really amazing piece of work by a director called Andy Smotanka, a one-man job, long, long labor of love. Uh, so I did the music and sound design for that, and I did the sound design with uh, sounds that were all, Creative Commons sounds. They were all licensed under CC, mostly obtained through freesound.org. And after that experience, I realized what a hugely valuable pool of of talent and media there was out there. And I, I realized I never could have done that show. I could not have uh, I could not have produced that uh, that score and soundtrack without uh, without that stuff. And in that case, the um, the sounds were integral to the score. I, I treated it as one piece because I was doing the whole, uh, the whole soundtracks, uh, uh, sound effects, and score at the same time. So it really all blended together. For me, it became part of one big composition. But it 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 just finally made me realize that, but wow, that, that there why why am I not participating in this? Why why do I feel like I have to to hoard my stuff? After Brett suggested doing a, a do not track that we released some, I released it and. I've been amazed to see the number of uh, of listens and downloads on uh, FMA for this thing I put there, which is probably a probably hundred times more than I've ever had anybody listen to anything I put out commercially. So that that's super satisfying. And, it, and things have popped up that uh, people have used the music already in ways I never would have anticipated. And, uh, I guess it's made me a, a believer. I don't know why I was so scared. I think it was scared because it's a it's a different thing, you know. It's a I never I hadn't been raised to think of putting your music out there, or your your goods out there in the wild like that for free. They were yours, proprietary. But I see the the power and the, and the beauty that can happen when you when you do let things out in the wild.
0: Yeah, one thing that I say a lot about Creative Commons media especially is that once it touches the internet it has a life of its own yeah exactly <laughs> and it's so cool it, it is
1: and um, it's, it's really true I mean it goes and, and does things the media goes and does things in ways that you could never anticipate and that that has become really interesting to me all of a sudden I mean now I realize I'm, it's like it's not like I'd ever made that much money off holding on to this stuff anyway so um, you know let's let it go and see what it does it's uh, much more interesting. Maybe I'm just getting old and I don't care anymore. But it's cool. It's really cool.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people that are suspicious of Creative Commons for that reason you know, are sort of conflating it with piracy or with closing themselves off from profiting from their right. work. Right. And I don't think that they're mutually exclusive, which right. is kind of a, a conception a lot of people have still.
1: Well, yeah, that was one thing I did learn is that um, I, I guess I had thought always that if you'd released something into creative commons that you no longer had the ability to use your own work in, for commercial purposes, uh, which is, as I've come to learn, is absolutely not true at all. Um, so that, that probably was a big fear. like my like Once it's gone, it's gone. But it's, it's not true. I mean, I guess it, it is true in the sense that I couldn't use something for uh, exclusive purposes. I could no longer guarantee exclusivity. But... There are still other ways I could use a piece of music.
0: Yeah, and I think unless something is directly commissioned and is used for a very specific purpose, it wouldn't be exclusive anyway. Right. If exactly. you release it under any other license. Um, right, right. So yeah, I always I always like to hear, you know, how people came around to Creative Commons, and mm-hmm. even if it's just a few tracks on the FMA, and and that's all you do, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think it's often very surprising to artists, the response that their work gets and how far, how much it grows legs and like runs really far, really quickly.
1: Well, it's really true. And, and I mean, what really surprised me was that there's no effort involved. I mean, if I were to release something, well, here's a great example. Uh, the soundtrack for Keyhole was a film I did for Guy Madden in 2011. It came out on Milan Records, a very well-respected uh, uh, soundtrack label. Terrific uh, uh, folks uh, on that label. Um, Cliff Martinez Drive, you know, sold a hundred thousand uh, copies for uh, of that soundtrack. So, uh, I was super thrilled about that. And uh, you know, the label mates with Cliff Martinez, and here we are, at Milan Records. Here it is, 2015, four years later. If we've sold a hundred CDs. That might be overestimating how many we've sold. I think I still owe them money just for the, you know, for whatever, uh, whatever it costs to print up the, the, you know, the artwork or something, but or do the mastering. Um, and you know, on the FMA here, like I said, the, just in the first few days, they're just they're th- literally thousands of, of listens, and uh, so it's crazy that there's no effort involved. It almost seems like, well, it's too, too good to be true in some way. There's got to be a catch, and to keep waiting. Waiting for the catch. What's the catch?
0: <laughs> we haven't figured out what the catch is yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good.
1: Yeah. That's good. And, you know, it really, I, I do now believe that it's better for people to hear your music than not. It, uh, music doesn't do any good on a shelf, and which is where a lot of mine sits on a shelf, on a DVD or a CD. And it's not doing anybody any good there. So,
0: Yeah, and then, you know, when you license something openly... Especially, you know, as long as you don't slap a no derivatives on it, we can put Mm -hmm. it in music for video, Mm -hmm. which is the second most visited page from our homepage. Like producers are there looking all the time for things that they can sync either as placeholders or, you know, as things they could license later. And um, I think FMA has done wonders for people who are looking for exposure in that regard.
1: Yeah. Thanks,
0: Shannon. Yeah, no problem. Bye bye.
1: Okay. Bye bye.
0: Radio Free Culture is produced by WFMU and the Free Music Archive. Our intro song this week is Lumpy Gravy by Jason Stazek, which can be found at freemusicarchive.org. To watch Do Not Track, please visit donottrack-doc.com.